So my name's Chris. I'm married to Kate. She uh, is an accountant. She deals with all our money in our house. She knows everything, and um, yeah, she she's just so incredible at uh, dealing with our money. But when it comes to me doing slides, I said uh, I want to talk about my hobbies, and she said, "Well, if you're going to talk about tents, which I decided I would, you need to put this tent in." So I was like, this is what was my favorite tent. I've got eight tents. But she said, um, uh, this, this particular picture is the one I want you to share because we have different views on your hobby. <laughs> so I always remember it's sunny when I go camping. This is her memory of when we go camping. Is, I don't know what happened. Someone left the tap on or something, but that, that's how she feels about some of the things I do. So she's actually at Vineyard this morning. We go to Vineyard. She's looking after our boys there that are incredible. You can see pictures of them. They're very creative, very imaginative. Uh, what else can I tell you about me apart from camping? I love board games. I play board games with John. I saw John somewhere. Hello. John has actually written me a board game to use in school. What do I do in school? Um, I run a charity that goes into school and talks about Jesus, which I'll tell you about in a minute. Um, what else is there to tell you about me? Oh, I go, I go to the vineyard. I've been going there 20 years, um, and I love it. I remember when we lived out of a, a sort of a little trailer and drove into schools and set up, and um, it's a little bit different now, and it's a li little bit easier on your back. But um, many years ago, um, you know, you'd get there about 8, 8, 7.30 in the morning and set up. Um, so greetings from vineyard. Um, we're in this transition time. We're waiting for a new pastor. Our founding pastor has just left, and um, uh, though he's sticking around, which is really nice. Um, so um, greetings from Vineyard. And what else could I tell you is um, I got saved at the age of 12 on an assault course. Actually, it was very wet. It was quite like that tent, to be honest. Um, so um, my experience of God is him breaking into the every day, the normal, even when you're not looking for him, like on an assault course. Um, uh, he, he comes and he breaks into your world. So uh, that gives you a little bit of an idea of, of who I am, my family, where I come from. And um, it's quite weird to be here because this space for me usually has no chairs in it and has a couple of hundred teenagers in it. Um, battling each other with balls and things. So if you ever find balls up in these blinds and things, that's uh, probably our fault, sorry. So, so it's really nice to be here and see this as a church when our experience of it is a, is a battlefield of teenagers throwing balls and doing various other things for it. So thank you for having me. I thought I'd tell you a little bit about what we do, what STEP does. Um, STEP is a, uh, a Christian charity aiming to work with the local secondary age students and tell them about Jesus any way we can. Uh, so we find volunteers from local churches and we ask them, what are you good at? And then we try and find a way to put them into local secondary schools, um, whatever they're good at. So this one guy said, uh, I, bet, I bet you can't find anything for me to do. And I was like, well, what, who are you? Tell me about yourself. And he said, um, I, I armor white blood cells, and I work nights. Which was a bit of a challenge, as I firstly don't know what armoring white blood cells is. <laughs> um, and, and, yeah, kids are in the day, and he works nights, so he sleeps in the day. But um, he goes in school now, and um, he helps them with their um, RE revision, and he goes and talks about how you can be a scientist and have a deep, profound faith. And um, he does only lesson one, and then he'll go home to bed um, uh, because he needs to sleep. So actually, my job often is to go around churches, find out what people are good at, and, and try and get kids in school to meet them. Can we, can we do the next slide? Um, to give you a little sort of scope of what we do, there's some numbers up here. Some people like stories. Some people like numbers. So we are working in um, 14 of the 17 secondary schools in this area. So 82% of teenagers in this area will hear about Jesus from STEP, which um, I love it. I love it. Um, I got saved on a salt course in school because someone 
came and told me about Jesus. So that's my hope. And but we do it for a couple of different ways. We do it for going in lessons and teaching RE, um, our top lessons, as you can see, ultimate questions, um, those numbers next to it, uh, 1,380 is the number of kids last year that did the ultimate questions lesson. In ultimate questions, we put a big line down the middle of the room and we say, we're going to ask you some questions, answer yes or no, and back it up. Uh, is God real? Yes or no? And they stand on either side of this line and dispute it and debate it with each other. And um, they give us their answer. The best argument, we will then run the lesson based on that. And the questions are, are based on their response. Is God real? No is far more fun than yes. Because if you do yes, you defend his character in this world. If you do no, then you get to talk to a bunch of kids about the existence of God and their objections to it. So if you go down in the no, then um, how did the world get to be here? And it's really, really interesting. So if you talk to a Christian about is God real or not, most of us aren't that very articulate about arguing for the existence of God. I don't know why, but in school, we're not very articulate. But the next question, if we lose that, the next question, um, how do we get to be here? Um, atheists are not very articulate in explaining how we get to be here because the question we ask them is how do we get to be here is this world just a wonderful accident and, and it's really hard for an atheist to, to say yes it's a wonderful accident because our world is so full of beauty and design that actually when they have to sit and ponder it these kids in schools really 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 struggle so we get a chance to to say so hold on christians you need to Get your arguments better. But atheists, you, you really do need to think about this. Are you really living in a world that is just a wonderful accident? Because you seem pretty impressed by the beauty of it and the wonder of it. So, so come up with their argument. So that's our top lesson we talk. Who is Jesus? We've taught 1,200 students last year, just sitting with them, looking at different views about who he is. So it gives you sort of a, an idea of the scope and the depth and the broadness of what we do in school. And then we do another bunch of things called informal education. Informal education is all those other things that we do in school which aren't teaching them information, connecting with them, running courses, running clubs. And um, I want to give students in school enough information and experiences to choose for or against Jesus. And so we give them information in lessons and we give them experiences outside of lessons. Um, so they can just make a good choice, just a good informed choice, which teenagers less and less are getting um, because there is this huge distance between people experiencing and knowing about faith and, and, and their world now. We are dividing. We, we live in a post-Christendom world and the chasm is getting bigger. So, so we're trying to bring that back into school. Um, what else is there worth telling you? That's probably enough, actually. Um, but we, we have a, a real love of doing some stuff here. So we generally go into school. But if we can stick the next slide on, before I show you some photos of your building being used. Um, this year, this coming year, we will have um, 1,200 students come through this building. They will come here. They will spend seven hours each here um, exploring some concept, some idea to do with, with faith. Um, they'll play games in here. They will reflect in here. They will do pottery, um, which you may go, why do you do pottery? Well, we've got a local church leader who's um, amazing, and he loves to sit and just get them to get their hands messy and get them talking while they throw pots and things. And he just explains the story of the potter's wheel and the potter's house and, and, and just gets them in a completely new space to ponder faith. Um, so we do a whole load of other stuff. This week, um, Tuesday and Wednesday, you will have 160 kids go through this building. And um, uh, they, uh, they'll come in, they'll play some games, they will go over here, so I can only see your building less with chairs and more with big resources on the floor. And the whole side of the church is full of these mats where they put on headphones and explore ideas to do with faith. Um, and some of the ladies, did you have an activity here on Thursday night, was it? 
um, uh, where you got to use some of our resources. So they get to do that. They will all go through and, and do this quite, sort of fairly immersive experience where they get to reflect about faith. They'll do some pottery over there. Helen actually is helping us and will be looking at what is church um, in your cafe area. And so they all will go through and explore what is it to be church. And um, upstairs in your, in your youth, one of your youth rooms, they will be doing an alpha session. And the idea is on the back of doing that alpha session, we'll invite them to come on an alpha course. So that's what's happening here this week. So thank you for letting us have a little room upstairs. And thank you for letting us um, use your building and bring students here. And um, on the whole, they're, they're fairly kind to it. Sorry if they're not. Um, we, we try and repair it. So um, that gives you a little sense of who Step is, what we do. Um, really interesting, kids that don't believe in God, um, their objections are science. And um, they talk about science like it's an entity, not at all. It's got a consciousness. It's, it's, they've almost made science God. Um, and you, we have to correct them quite a lot. This is just a tool. You, you can't talk about science like it's a creative force. But actually, that's, that's what they do. And um, I challenged a student on it the other day, and, um, and he wanted to talk to his parents about it because his parents had taught him that science was like an entity. Yeah. And it's, God, God has been replaced by this conscious science. It's really, really interesting. Um, another huge objection is suffering. How can a good God allow suffering? And um, uh, they have this image of God that Christians believe. They think Christians believe, I should say. That he's like a, um, a little dog in a box, and when we pray, he runs out, you know, wags his tail, looks at us, and we say, go fix it, Jesus! And he runs off and does it. Or a genie in the lamp understanding of who he is. And so um, uh, when we talk about prayer and suffering, it's like their eyes blank over because they don't really understand the depth of what prayer is. Um, but that's one of their huge rejections is, why would God allow me to suffer? Um, he's my genie. He's my, my little dog that will fix things. And, and the last sort of big objection, which I found quite surprising, but it's growing more and more, is, um, uh, is I'm not good enough. Christians are good people. When you get down to it, when you talk to them, well, why, why do you not believe? It's because I'm not good. And Christians are good people. And you and I know. <laughs> yeah, we know that's not true. But somehow they've picked that up. They've learned that. And I don't know where we've got that from. Have they got it from the news and seeing what we protest against and what we're not for? And, or have they got it from encounters with us? Have they learned it from their parents? I don't, I don't know where it's in, but it's got into their psyche that only Christians are good people. And we will say to them, Christians aren't good. We are grateful. We are so grateful. And because of our gratitude, we do you know, um, aspire to doing good deeds but we're not good. Um, they got me pondering a little bit. How, how does the world see us? How do they, what do they see when they get us? And often when people think about Christians that don't have faith, they have this kind of two-dimensional image of a Christian that we pray, go genie, get them. We, we, we read a book and, and mindlessly follow it. Um, that we, we turn up to a building and, um, uh, and I don't know what they do in there. You know, and, and, and they've got this two-dimensional image. And um, my hope, my prayer, and I guess the thing I, I want us to engage in a little bit is how, how, do, we, how do we get beyond that? How do, we, how do they meet the, the 3D-ness of you and me, of our faith? Um, as that's what I think our world around us needs is, is to see the, the richness, to see it in our lives and um, not to just engage in our theological views of what we're for and what we're against. They, they, they need to meet all of us and our faith being worked out because, you know, we struggle with suffering and wonder and have questions and um, uh, we wonder if we're good enough sometimes, and we know we're not. And, um, uh, 
And we sometimes feel stumped with questions about science. So, So actually, we're asking some questions sometimes. So that's why I thought we'd ponder a little. Um, so some other people just on the, the whole working with step front they say well how do we get to work with you Chris what, 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 is, what, what is the criteria um, and obviously around in a day is good but um, we don't really have this huge criteria because actually for kids to meet someone who believes, to meet someone that is a 3D Christian is all I want for my charity. But actually, it's, I think all I really want in life is in our workplaces to meet the 3Dness of us, to meet the depth of who we are. Um, because the Bible says, um, we were reading Hebrews 12, uh, earlier Helena read it, goes on to say, he talks about all these great clouds of witnesses and these heroes. And, um, and Paul says of them all that they were aliens and strangers in the land. People that, that had not chosen to settle, but had set their eyes on something ahead, something wonderful. And they were living for that. Whether they got it in this life or not, that's what they were after. And that's who I want kids to meet in school. I, I don't think you can look at that kind of person and go, that's boring. That has no depth. That's two-dimensional that it's too much that's what hebrews that's what he was talking about and and for wherever we are whether you can volunteer with me please do or you you're being 3d in your work or in your family um when we are these people that have our eyes set on something other that we live like aliens and strangers in this land we stand out because we just do life so blooming different i think that's the criteria for me, but hopefully in your spaces as well. So, I thought I'd just look at a little bit of text to explore this a little bit more. So, can we do the next slide? But I don't know if you put text up on the screen or if you use Bibles. So, we're going to look at this. So, if you've got your Bibles, look at it. But I did put it up on one slide after as well. So, to give you a bit of backstory of what I want to explore with us, um, the previous 24 hours for Jesus has been quite something. Um, I don't, in, because I don't know you very well, um, I just want you to call to mind your Jesus. I don't know if he's dressed like a Jedi, you know, with a robe. But uh, these last 24 hours, it's been warm, it's been hot, it's in another country with another way of doing things and, um, and the centre of this story is this character Jesus that when he casts his eyes on you everything changes and many of us have probably experienced him I guess it's most of us, but um, this story is about him, so let's not just think we're reading a story, this is about this, this guy that everything changes. There, there is just something just so right about him. Just everything seems to settle into place. You can't help being drawn to him. And yes, he sometimes offends you. But um, uh, it's about him. So call him to mind. And um, he... He's been talking to a crowd, and um, they've been drawn because he has done miracles. And we've heard about some miracles today. Amazing, the power of, of God breaking into our world here and now. It, you can't help but be focused, to be drawn, to want more. And when they come to hear more, he then ends up having to feed them all. He's just fed the 5,000 men, let alone women, and everyone else attached to that. So he's just done another miracle. And, um, and the, the, the scriptures say that they are about to seize him and make him king, which is a little bit early. You know, it's not what he wants. And so he disappears off to pray, but he's, he's getting out of a really potential difficult scenario. Um, he, he doesn't want to have a crown. He wants to be king of hearts, not geography. And so, so he avoids them, he escapes, and when the crowds have dispersed slightly, um, he realizes his disciples have headed off. 
and they're on the wrong side of the, the river, the lake, the sea, whichever one it is. And, um, and so he decides to stroll across it, just as he can. And, um, uh, and he strolls across it, meets them in a boat. Uh, and the scripts are really odd. I don't know how to, I don't want to add too much to it. But it says, when he gets on the boat, they find themselves at land immediately. So I don't know if there's a teleportation as well involved in there, or they were just slightly distracted at Jesus walking in and the boat just hits land. Whatever happened there, I don't know. But it's quite an interesting last 24 hours, I think is my point. Um, and these crowds, when he's disappeared off, they, they realize he's gone. The disciples are gone, and they want more. Miracles do that, don't they? They make you want more. They want more. So they search for him, and some are searching for miracles, some want more food, and some want to hear what he has to say. And um, this, this little bit of text we're going to read, I haven't got time to do it all, but it's leading into Jesus saying his first, I am. I am the bread of life. I am all you need. I will sustain you. This is leading up to that, but we're not going to do all that. Sorry. So, where will we start? Verse 25. Let me read it. When they found him on the other side, they asked, Rabbi, when, when did you get here? They, they are trying to fathom how he got across the river, the lake, the sea, without a boat. When did you get here? Which brings us to ponder a little bit about miracles. Miracles do, they, they attract, they, they draw us to God. Um, they're, they're amazing. We, we in school do a lesson called Arguments for the Existence of God, and we spend a good proportion of it telling miracle stories because they draw. They really do. Um, I was teaching it once, and I realized that most of the class were just, and they were going through all their theories of, you know, he could be insane, he could be a mass hysteria, and they, they were going through all the things they'd learned of arguments against miracles. And um, this one kid, you could tell that he was not being drawn by it at all. And I said to him, what do you think Jesus thinks? Do you think Jesus thinks miracles prove the existence of God? And um, this kid was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know him enough. And so I read him a little bit of a story where Jesus has just done a whole load of miracles. And, um, uh, and the, the crowd get really angry with him because he said he's God. And they take him to the edge of the cliff and they're going to throw Jesus off and drop a stone on his chest to crush him. And Jesus, again, does that weird thing that we've just read about where he just isn't where he should be. It says that he passes through the crowd. But if they've just grabbed him, I don't know how he passed through the crowd. But he ends up at the other side of the crowd and he shouts, well, which of the miracles are you going to stone me for? And I said to this lad, well, does Jesus think miracles prove the existence of God or not? And he looked at me and he said, I know the answer is yes, he does. But reading that story, I think he was probably a little bit like, this isn't working. This is, this is not working. And I, I said, for some of us, miracles do less about proving the existence of God but do a lot to show the state of our hearts. And in this room, there's a whole load of people that I could, I could call down far from heaven now and you still would not believe because our hearts are set against him. And so miracles are incredible, but they also begin to show the state of what's going on inside. And this guy, guy said, yes, absolutely. Um, I, I just want to prove you wrong. And I said, that's really interesting. You've walked into the room feeling that way. And he said, yes. And I said, so miracles do work, don't they? And he was like, I see your point. And so um, miracles are incredible. They, they, they draw us, they gather us, but they also show what is really inside of us. Are our hearts kindly disposed to God? Or are we locked up? Are, are we stuck? Are we shut? And... Um, they're really amazing in missional activity. Um, we would love to do them so much more in school, um, but we're, we're told we're not allowed to. So um, uh, we have, well, there's only certain lessons we can actually sort of let some of the more charismatic side of our team really express their faith. Um, which is a shame as I go to Vineyard. <laughs> so 
we're, you know, that's, that's what we're taught. That's what we're trained in. Um, but we have some amazing lessons on that. So Jesus has drawn them and he's gathered them. And um, they've come looking for him. Let's read the next line. And Jesus says, um, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miracles, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Which is quite interesting, isn't it? So Jesus, Jesus does miracles. And he knows it will gather the crowd. But actually, for us, when we ponder mission, we also need to realize that people stay because they're fed. Because people have fellowship and friendship, that people connect with them. Looking at those incredible photos earlier, um, there were so many amazing photos of prayer, but there were so many amazing smiling faces of connection, of fellowship, of friendship. And, and so these, these people follow Jesus they were drawn by the miracles, but they stayed because he fed them. Yeah. And for, I know food is a big thing here. I love it because I get to eat it on Monday. Whatever you leave, I eat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, but but do, you, do you get that actually in, in our outreach, in our communities, where we work, where, whatever we're doing, actually that place of food, of fellowship, of connection, is utterly vital. The, the, the phone numbers were passed in um, Hosanna's story. That's, they're drawn and now is, is their depth, is their family, is, is this here? And Jesus, Jesus said, you've come because of that. You want that. And, I'm a, and I don't know if he literally is just talking about bread, but for me, food is an image of security, of safety, of wholeness as well. And I'm a, and. That, that is what Jesus seems to offer when you meet him. That's why he's followed. That's why he's drawn. That's why when I said at the beginning, imagine your Jesus, is because he, he elicits something in us. Even when we just hear his name, when we say his name in lessons, it changes a room because he elicits it. And so um, it's quite funny. Where, where, do you know the main reason for me sinning? When I sin... Um, I sin often because my security, my stability, my safety, my security is being attacked, has been threatened. You know, I've argued with my wife Kate or my, my kids are doing things. And it, it's the quickest way to stimulate sin in me is to affect the food, the sustenance, my safety in my life. It's really fascinating. I probably sin most when I'm hungry. I know that sounds odd, but it's totally true. You do a little bit of an audit of yourself, you know, today when you sin next. Just, why did that happen? Was it because I felt unsafe? Was it because I felt insecure? What, what was the root of it? And it's often because the food, those things get threatened. So when Jesus says, you know, in a minute, which I'm not going to get to read, um, I am the bread of life. He's saying that when you feel threatened, when you feel insecure, when those things are going, and we turn to sin to medicate, to ease okay, Jesus is saying you, there's something better. Good. There's something better. Um, it's funny, is when I talk about sin in school, kids' eyes, they just don't get it. They just don't get it. It's because sin is about... Um, rebelling, turning away from um, moral authority, then they have, they have none of that, of rejecting someone who may know better. They have none of that. And so we have to talk about sin differently. Um, we use the phrase, it's a shortcut to happiness. Do you, do you ever do any shortcuts to happiness? If, if happiness is here and you are here, do you ever try and make yourself happy, medicate yourself, bring your security back by just going there, because that they can get. Yes, I do. And so you end up going, sorry, 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 sorry. Oh, I feel better. And, um, and they get that. What they don't get is that shortcut to happiness. They break the heart of Father God. They, they, they put a barrier between them and him. And the, the worst thing is, he cannot turn away. Um, we use this word in school uh, um, that he is omniscient. He sees all, he knows all. Um, and it's great. It's a great word. A better image for them to draw in their books is someone with their eyes held open with matchsticks. 
that's what our sin for God is like. Can he turn away? Can he pretend he didn't see it? Can, can he disengage? Can he focus on something else? Actually, that, 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 that just desire to find a moment's ease and peace. Omniscience for God probably solves some problems, but it breaks his heart because he cannot look away and the damage and the, all that goes on is we just try and medicate, ease our pain. And so when Jesus says, I give you food, I, you come to me because you know there is more than this little short, quick fix that disappears very quickly, eases very quickly. Um, uh, he says, there is more. There is something that will sustain you, will give you life. That's why you've come to me, is you know there is more. And so next time sin rears its head this afternoon, and it's because you're hungry, and so you row because the, the preacher talked too long and the oven didn't go on, and when all those things happen, actually there is something more than that shortcut. There is something where our Jesus is standing at the door for that as well as everything else where he actually can help us not just try and medicate and ease, where he wants to bring life into that space as well. Let me read on as I'll, I'll get carried away just on every little point. Um, so Jesus says there is, there is a food for every part of life. And we often, if we're a two-dimensional Christian, we sort of reduce Jesus' his saving power. Remember, our saved at 12. We could reduce that saving power into getting us into heaven. But that's, that's not what he died for. He didn't die just to spend eternity with us, for us to have our eyes set on a, a future kingdom. He died for the conversations over roast dinner. He died for anything that would, 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 we would choose to self-medicate and ease our pain because he has something better. And that's why they've crossed the sea. That's why they're looking for him because they sense about this, this man, this God-man, something more. So, so Jesus says this. Um, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Don't put your energy into shortcuts of happiness. There is more. Jesus says this. On him, he's talking about himself, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. If he walked in here now, we would know that seal of approval. We would be filled with awe. We'd be filled with wonder. And they got to see that. They got to experience something in that moment of, of, of Jesus in a bit of his glory. God's saying, this is the way. I'm going to speak through this man. And um, uh, their response is quite natural. Um, will tell us if, how we're doing. They say this. Um, they asked him, what must we do to do so to do the work God requires. What they're really saying is, is Jesus, how are we doing? What, how do we earn this? How, how do we get better? If you really do speak for God, if you've really got this seal of approval on you, what, what can we do? Whenever an amazing prophet or someone comes, you know, I, I'm always filled with questions. That somehow I want to abdicate responsibility for my own discipleship to someone who's bigger and better. I don't know if you're the same. I, I want to I know how am I doing. I want you to tell me. I, I, I almost want to reduce this from a relationship with God through to you being his spokesman. It's a little bit easier that way sometimes. And so they say, well, how, what, is, what is it you require, God? What, what are the works? Um, which I find really funny because standing in front of them is this omniscient being that sees and knows all, that is also outside of time. So they're living in the life they've lived, all 20 years or 30 years or whatever. And when Jesus looks at them, when he looks at you and me, do you think he ever goes, that was a bit of a surprise? Does an omniscient being do that? He sees all of us. And so, so when they're trying to work out how are we doing, how, how's it going, God? Am I a good Christian? Actually, Jesus sees all of us from the beginning to the end, the bits we haven't lived yet. Um, let me f find something to show you. So 
great, great communicator once described it as this, that, that when God examines you, he sees your beginning and your end. Is it conceivable that God can look at you and go, yep, this is Chris? He is never surprised by us. He knows all of us. So when Jesus died for us, he didn't die thinking this life would unfold. He died for us. He knows us full well, all of us. He knows the full knowledge of who we are. The Bible says, even though we were dead in our sins, he died for us. And so when we stand before God, we stand before God so secure because he sees all of us. He holds us in the palm of our hands. He knows our beginning. He knows our ends. He knows every intricacy. That moment that we're stuck in now, he sees and he knows what's next. So when they, these, these guys say, what, what is the work we require? How are we doing? Tell, tell us how can we can earn your favor. He's looking at someone that he knows everything that's going on. So I, I just find it quite funny that, that they're, they're so desperate about the here and now when he... He has so much more for them. So, let me find my place back in notes. Um, what does he want to give them? What, 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 what is the work that he requires? And the text uh, says this. Um, Jesus answered, the work that, of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent which seems really simple. They're like, oh. And here can be our problem sometimes because when we think believe, we are sort of reduced to that intellectual understanding and we become 2D again. We're reduced to, well, he is God. He came from heaven to earth. He died in my place for my sin, taking my sin and giving me his righteousness. And we, we, we have these phrases and, and Jesus wants our belief to be a little bit more in-depth, a little bit more spread out on the whole of us because he knows that it needs to affect all of us. He knows that this is where we, we find our answerness to happiness. As the reality is, true happiness is only found in him alone. Everything else is pale imitation. Everything we strive to, we, we adhere to, uh, that we want to make it in, they are pale next to standing in front of him and being filled with awe. So, I think there's a video in a minute. Can we skip that? Is that all right? So the slide after the video. Yeah, sorry. It's a funny video. But... So when we say this phrase, Jesus died for all of us, once for all, we think he died once for the whole of the whole world, which is dead on true. That act on the cross meant that he put a stop to sin's power and death and gave us all a second chance. That is dead right. And I'd love to preach on all of that. Um, what happened there was he... The word saved is broken into three bits, really. Uh, we are justified before God. When he died, he, he exchanged our sin for his relationship with God, his righteousness. God, look, the Father, looks at us and sees his righteousness. He did that for everyone. But the next bit of what salvation is called sanctification, which is where we become more Christ-like. We become this word holy, which means separate. It doesn't mean you float. It means that you become these people that are living for a land to come. So that's going on. And the last part of what being saved is glorification. Whatever doesn't get done here, God does it in a blink of an eye at the end. You know, if some of our friends are in glory, that's what happens at the end. But we are stuck in sanctification. That's going on, and that's where we need to believe. We believe for being justified, but we also need to apply belief to what he's doing in us. So, Jesus died once for all, all the world, but you know, he died once for all of us, every bit of us, not just our intellectual theory, but what happens when we want to sin, what happens when we're struggling at work, what happens when we're around with our wife or feeling exasperated with our kids. But the problem is the busyness of life just steamrolls us, and we quite quickly just step back into feeling justified, and that's it. 
But actually, all these moments when Jesus says, I want you to believe in me, means it matters for that as well. It matters there. Can we do the next slide? So I've stolen this. Watchman Nee writes this amazing book explaining Ephesians. But it's also, and he wrote the coin, the phrase, sit, walk, stand. It's a really good way of exploring the idea of belief. So I want to look at three different parts of belief, and then we'll finish. So the first part is, is being seated in your beliefs, is being comfortable in your belief. I was praying um, on the way here, saying, God, what, what is a good image for someone who, is, who sits in their belief? And um, you know when a dog um, uh, finds its bed and it walks around in circles a few times and then sits down I think being seated in your belief is you sort of walk you sort of try it out, you fire it out you, you, you give it a go um, you, you get, begin to try and get comfortable in it and so whatever God may want you to, to challenge you in, to grow you in what you could believe more for Actually, it's a little bit like a dog. I'm just going to test this out. You read things about it. You hear stories about it. You get excited about it. But it's all very much sort of up there, and you, you're just finding that place of, uh, of comfort. Um, and we often spend a lot of time praying about it. And like I said, prayer isn't, you know, um, rubbing a lamp and letting the genie out or unlocking the door, and Jesus goes, what should I do for you, Master? Prayer often doesn't just move God, it moves us. Does that make sense? The more you pray about that thing that's bothering you, the more you sort of lean into him to hear his heart, to hear his voice, it moves you. you we heard about the compassion that comes when we see people earlier in that story. Prayer moves us. And so that's all the kind of the dog sort of walking around, sitting. And so part of our belief is just to get a little bit more comfortable in what God says about sin, what God says about mission, what God says about how we should spend our time, our money, what we should hope when, how we should feel secure. Belief applies to every one of those things. It's not just about being saved for heaven. It's about here and now. Um, the next bit is walking it out. And um, actually, I probably want to do an example for this. Does anyone trust me enough to let me hold you up in that kind of classic fall over kind of thing? <laughs> Thank you. We're only, oh, you're huge. Can I have someone smaller? No. <laughs> we'll go on the stage. Um, if you could face this that way and say, whatever is about to happen to me. Don't worry, I'm not going to tease you. Could you lean into my arms, sweetie? So... Um, uh, how are you feeling? Fine. He went up half an octave. <laughs> Let's see if we can get an octave out of him. He is really big. I know he's only been here a year, but... So, so excellent, thank you. Um, what does sort of walking out our faith means? That we actually begin to test it, to try it, to give it a go. There really is two hands nearby. Um, uh, and, um, and there is a little sense of nervousness about it, but we, we've got a little bit enough confidence to give it a go. But I want you to imagine what this looks like to our friends or the kids in school or the people we work with when we really do begin to believe and lean into something God has said to us at church we've heard on Sunday. And the way to do that is to imagine I'm not here. How would he look? When you genuinely lean and put your trust and believe on God, the same way you're believing in your chairs, this is what it begins to look like to your friends. No longer are you this collection of intellectual beliefs. They look at you and go, how can he sustain that? How is that possible? And so they may have been drawn into and fascinated by the miracles they see in your world, but there is something when you lean into God for your food, for the stability, for your comfort, that just looks odd if I wasn't here. But our God is far more real, far more physical, and far stronger than me. And we're there to sustain us when we walk it out, when we lean into him. I think that's good enough. <laughs> Thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much. And so what I'm trying to hope you, to get you to realize is 
Belief isn't simply saving belief from the faith he gives us. It is about taking some risks, not just intellectually inspiring to, to it. And, um, and it's nervous. It sends you up half an octave. Um, and we heard some great stories of very brave, brave people. But people just look on. And it's not just about praying for healing. It is generally in your day-to-day life. But the, the final one, stand. Um, uh, Robbie Dawkins is quite amazing, isn't he? Yeah, and um, uh, he came and spoke at the vineyard and told us how to pray for people and told us to take risks. And um, the next day he was meeting with the vineyard leaders and I had a lesson I had to go to so I couldn't go. And I tried to find people to cover me but I had to go and teach this lesson. And I was just moaning about it. And um, uh, someone said to me, "Um, Chris, what, what questions do you have for him? And I said, I've only got one really. How does an introvert do what you do as an extrovert because he gets on a plane and just tells everyone he loves Jesus and I just am not wired that way and and do I just need to dig deep and have a huge amount of faith for that plane flight or is there a different way for introverts and um, they forgot to ask him I know some of you really want to know the answer to that do we really just have to become extroverted in those moments when the Holy Spirit says, I don't know. Um, I know that God apportions grace. And I think of that like a cake. And God chops all we need. And so if he calls you to do something on an aeroplane or to walk into a mosque or whatever, there is grace. He apportions grace. There is always just what you need. So whatever he asks us to do, there is grace for it. So um, I don't know, that's my answer, not his. But um, I was thinking about it as I went to church that Sunday and my son was refusing to go into his group. I don't want to go in my group, I hate my group, I don't know anyone, I haven't got any friends. And um, you know when you just want to shove him through the door and sit down and hear the sermon? That was in my heart. <laughs> I'm thinking, what, this is, your eternal salvation depends on being here and all these Thoughts are flying, and there was no belief going on whatsoever. And, um, uh, and our children's worker, she walked by. She's amazing. She's called Marna. And, um, uh, and she went, what's the problem? And I said, Daniel doesn't want to go into group again. And she did this. She went, Daniel, come here. She went, come, Holy Spirit. Peace of God dropped. And she went, done. And he wandered into the group. I could give you Robbie Dawkins as an example of someone who stands. I could give you Marna as well. She just knew in that moment, no amount of cajoling, no amount of anger, no matter all those things, actually she just knew her belief was, actually this would be good for him. The Holy Spirit can deal with anything. And she asked him to come. And I think sometimes belief for those that, if, if this is the veteran space, whatever you want to call it, something you've mastered and you've owned, she's mastered and owned that, that when I'm stuck, I ask the Holy Spirit to come. So I don't know where bits of life, where you are sitting in it and you're trying it out and where you're taking some risks and leaning or where actually you just know, you just know, but... When Jesus says the, the work of God, what God requires, well, what he wants to see growing in you, really, is not elaborate, it's not extensive, it's not lots and lots of great theologies. He just wants us to take every bit of our life and begin to believe. And to start off by getting excited about it, trying it out, taking some risks. But finally, he wants us to bring us to a place where actually we just know, we just know. And um, that's what I think this text is about. And that's why I think 3D belief is really about. That's no longer being two-dimensional and full of doctrines and great ideas. It's, it's actually, at the end of the day, come Holy Spirit, or actually Christ is sufficient, or, or whatever area it is, is beginning to be owned by it and knowing it because you've read it so many times. So I want to just finish with an image, really. Can we do the last slide? This is about suffering, and, I, um, and Helen talked about this a little bit earlier about 
persevering and enduring. Um, I love C.S. Lewis. And um, he's just so wise. And he talks about suffering. And, and he has this idea. He's really owned it. He's really standing in it. His belief is breaking out. And he says this about suffering, but I'd like to apply it to just life. He says that um, heaven once attained works backwards. Once we salvation belief, once we justify belief, it begins to break into every area of our life. It works backwards into everything. And so the image I want to give you really leaving is this. I want you to imagine St. Albans Market or any market where it's been raining. And um, all the stalls, the tarpaulins are full of water. And you walk through and you're glad to be under the cover and the shelter. But actually, as you look around, there, you know there's this weight of destruction, of wetness happening. And as you walk around, there, there, there's this guy, and he knows that his tarpaulin is going to break fairly soon. So he gets a pole, ignores everyone around, and just shoves it underneath and pushes. And it's like the heavens break out. It just falls everywhere. And I want to say this, that um, Christians who believe, that allow belief to break into the parts of their lives, are like that guy with his pole. That um, uh, as you see it happen... As, you, as someone applies it, as they lean, or as mana just says, come Holy Spirit, it's like the heavens were so available, the kingdom of God is so available, so near, and the potential, the weight, um, the kabod, the glory of God's presence, it's that close. And our belief is like getting that pole and just going, and it's just breaking out. And so the work that God requires is to believe. Amen.